Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got another uh, terrific episode uh, in store for you guys with a uh, longtime contributor to the control system cybersecurity space. I have Steve Mustard, who is the president and CEO of National Automation, Inc. He's also well known as being a longtime volunteer and past president of the International Society of Automation, or ISA. But uh, you might not know uh, other dimensions uh, of Steve. He is also a home brewer. He's a cyclist. He's a triathlete, although I think he, he mentioned that uh, that might not be something he's done recently. He's a guitarist. I won't comment on his own comments on how good a guitarist he is, uh, but he's also a husband uh, and, and a father and uh, an all-around good guy and a great contributor to our community. Thank you for being a supporter of CSA in, for years now and for coming to the show. Thank you, Derek. It's a great honor to be with you today. I really appreciate the opportunity. So I think, first of all, Steve, we got to get it out uh, get it out of the way. You, you, you live in uh, in Texas, but that is not a Texas accent. Where, <laughs> where, where do you actually come from? Yep, that's correct. I am... Um, I'm a little bit east of Texas, so I'm originally from uh, a place in the northeast of England called Sunderland. Not a very well-known place for most people, but um, it was, uh, in in the old days, the world's largest producer of ships. So uh, no longer these days, but very industrial town. That's where I spent uh, my formative years. So I think it's also uh, well-known for something else, a major product that we all um well, I don't know, we all rely on because they're being replaced by a newer kind of product, but we've historically all relied on something that got in, and did it get invented there? Uh, yes. So uh, the incandescent light bulb, uh, most people associate that as being invented by Edison. And uh, whilst he actually commercialized it, the person who came up with the original idea is a man called Joseph Swan, who was born in Sunderland. So if you go to the museum in Sunderland, you'll see uh, lots of exhibits about him. Uh, as I say, he's been lost in the mists of time, but uh, he is actually the man who came up with the original idea. And it w- would it be safe to say that uh, you grew up in in a, in, a, in an Alice in Wonderland environment, so to speak? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So <clears throat> Lewis Carroll, who wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland and other books, um, famously spent a lot of his time in Sunderland, his uh, holiday vacation time. And uh, a lot of his inspiration for the book came from there. So, again, if you go to the museum, you'll see a stuffed walrus. And that's actually the the walrus and the carpenter was inspired by that stuffed walrus, for instance. Again, not a lot of people know that, but um, there's actually a book called uh, Alice in Sunderland, which is written by uh, a local um, graphic artist. And uh, that's all about uh, the connection between Alice in Wonderland, uh, Lewis Carroll and Sunderland. So very uh, interesting book if you're interested in graphic novels. Awesome. I thought I'll check that out. I, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, fan of, of history and I actually my undergraduate degree was in history. So I I, uh, I find that all very interesting. Well, let's let's sort of peel back to the onion layers that are Steve. Um, you know, I'm always curious where three themes start and how early they start. Technology, interest in technology, uh, interest in cybersecurity. Uh, you know, control systems, engineering uh, type disciplines, uh, which comes first, chicken or egg? And where do they, where does that, what's the first step in any of those? Well, I was always interested in engineering. So coming from a highly industrialized town, it was inevitable I was going to be involved in some way in some kind of um, industrial job, uh, whether it be in a coal mine or a shipyard or heavy industry. I didn't get the opportunity to get a job straight out of high school. So I ended up going to a technical college and that was my first exposure to, to technical things. So my school, we had no computers back then. I was probably the last generation who never really experienced computers at school. Uh, but uh, my first exposure was at technical college and that's where I really got interested in it. I really enjoyed that and also uh, mathematics, which I hated at school. 
but I actually learned to love it. And so that's where I really got invested in engineering, especially, and control systems engineering in particular, because those people who are familiar with control systems know it's a lot of heavy math. And so if you really like that kind of thing, which I did at the time, then uh, it's really interesting to do. So that's that's kind of how I started. Yeah, I love uh, each of your backgrounds, all these guests, you know, people come from different starting points. And the unicorns, as I think most of us re refer to people who have expertise across multiple domains to be cybersecurity for control systems experts, they're as rare as unicorns. They they graph that these other paths have to merge at some point, and we'll talk about where they do with you. You come from the original path of engineering and control mm -hmm. systems. So what what is what's next after that training? How many years is that? You know, is that what you're doing? What kind of things are you doing in the in the in the OT or, or ICS environment? Yeah, so I, I did a, a, a BS degree in, in engineering, in control systems engineering. And uh, so I spent uh, three years, uh, well, two years at technical college and three years at university doing that. And then um, I, my first job was in a, an organization that did a lot of um, space and defense type projects. So not automation as such, not process automation, but very much real-time systems, embedded hardware, embedded software, assembly language, all those kind of things that you would be familiar with in, in our normal environments. So that was my career for uh, almost 15 or so years. And then I moved over into the energy and utilities business where it was very much on the SCADA side of things and I got involved in that. And throughout all of this process, I'm obviously learning all of these new technologies, these new applications of technology. So that's where I kind of developed this um, interest in control systems in particular, automation systems. And then the cybersecurity thing came along a bit later, of course. So, um, Do you remember where that intersects? Because that's sometimes people are like, oh, I don't know, somewhere in this year. Other people are like, this event. Yeah. Uh, particular thing that my boss said, go do this. And that started me down that path. Do you recall where it graphs onto your, your engineering path? Yeah, yeah, it was a very particular point in time that I remember, which is not long after that high profile incident in Australia, in Queensland, the Maroochydore incident where VTEC Bowden hacked into the sewage treatment plant and, and released raw sewage into the environment. I had a customer who was uh, in one of the other uh, cities in Australia and the Australian government, of course, were thinking, well, we don't want this to happen again. So we're going to really uh, push hard to make sure all these other uh, SCADA systems in the water and wastewater business are secured. So that was uh, something that he kind of talked to me about and said, you know, we're, we're getting pressurized to do this and we need to look into it. And that's where I really started to look into that particular subject. So that's back in the early 2000s. That incident was 99. He got the guy got arrested in 2000. And then it was obviously after that 2001 and onwards where people started to think, well, this could happen to us. It's basically since then I, I started to realize that there's a relationship between security and um, control systems. Of course, I mentioned that I worked in space and defense, so I had a lot of experience in working in information security. I used to have to spend a lot of time keeping information secure. We did a lot of highly classified projects. You know, I did things like I had to uh, carry a board with firmware on it for a um, sonar tracking system, and I used to have to carry it in a lock case with a handcuff on my wrist. So yeah. I was very familiar with those days back before a lot of technology was around about how important information security was. But obviously the control systems was a completely different issue. And, you know, we were there at the early days understanding what, we, what are we going to do to ensure we protect the availability of these of these systems. 
Yeah, that's there's a number of interesting things there, but I, I almost want to go back. But I want to touch on the thing you just said: availability. Early on, you know, cybersecurity control systems. You go back far enough, there's no discussion of it at all. The early discussions, it seems to me that that triggers some memories of things I've read, and as that predates my working in this space for sure. Um, was availability, resiliency, these sorts of things. And so if something could disrupt that, that's, is that the sort of the initial discussions? It's there, you know, there's no really sophisticated nation state, you know, a lot of the stuff today, threat actor wise, yeah, that doesn't exist. But it was like, ooh, somebody could mess up this thing and this power plant is not gonna go down this year or only is gonna go down for six hours in November, That that's it. And yeah. anything that might disrupt that is bad. Is that where that, is that the early sort of the primordial discussions? Yeah, so as I recall it, yeah, the, the first thing is, we don't want an incident like that Maruchidor one to happen. The second thing yeah, that I just, that? where was that? No, no, when, I remember. Oh, when, no, 99 was uh, the year when Vitek Bowden was doing that, and then he was arrested and tried and, and sentenced, I think in 2000, and so that's when it became more public. So yeah. 2001 onwards was where people started to make the connection that it could happen to them. As you say, mostly about interrupting their operations in some way and maybe yeah. causing some you know, liability issues and, and environmental issues and such like. But that's um, so, like 22 years ago, not many people yet, you know, it's not like that event, that only piqued certain people's interest. Mm. Uh, I mean, I entered sort of sort of operating and doing things in this space in 2011, I want to say, and even then highly immature. Mm -hmm. Regardless, yep. Even talking about where we are today, 22 years ago or 23 years ago, mm -hmm. that thing still didn't send off alarm bells for a lot of people. But for mm -hmm. you and for the kind of work you were doing and the kind of clients, that was that was the beginning for you. That's right. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit to a couple of years later, and the um, the British government started an organization called the National Infrastructure Security Coordination Center, NICE, and that's now called CPNI, the Center for Protection of uh, National Infrastructure. And they organized uh, a series of workshops with vendors and also asset owners in the UK, uh, energy and utilities in particular, about how we're going to protect our critical infrastructure. You know, that was around about the time when people started calling things critical infrastructure and understanding the security implications of those things. So we had a big kickoff meeting uh, in uh, the Secret Service headquarters in, in, in London on the banks of the Thames. And uh, we got together and kind of talked about all the issues. And you won't be surprised to hear that the top issue for all the asset owners was how do we make sure that our vendors can certify or assure the Microsoft patches that are coming out in a timely manner so that we can deploy them so that we're not exposed to vulnerabilities. So right back in 2005, that was the top issue that I remember. And as you said, <laughs> many years later, we still talk about the same thing. We're still on that problem of how do you make sure that these patches are tested, approved by vendors, and then they're deployed in a timely manner so that we don't have exposure to these uh, vulnerabilities that we know about. So it's amazing. It's, it's kind of frustrating in some ways that, you know, we haven't even still solved that problem properly because we still talk about it. But uh, it's interesting that it's uh, it's always been an issue. Yeah, I've heard people talk about this from different perspectives. Uh, you know, as long as I've been exposed to the space, like you say, where would you say we are? We making progress in that area because it's a big, it's a big area. There's lots of legacy equipment, way more than traditional IT next one of the networks. You know, one of the one of the points of differentiation. You could have twenty year old technology. You know, are we making progress in this this particular slice of the pie? The the, the patching and not having known vulnerabilities be the reason we had a problem. 
Yeah, we, we definitely are. So in, in certain sectors more than others, I would say my experience is I do a lot of work in oil and gas and I find that they're definitely ahead of the pack in terms of uh, dealing with these fundamental security issues. So um, the vendors are aware of these issues and they're coming up with their own solutions to, to deal with it. Uh, the asset owners have their own solutions to deal with it. Part of the challenge is how you integrate all those together in a seamless way so it actually works. But um, people understand you know, how we're gonna do that technically, how we're gonna um, make those patches available in these remote locations on these devices ready for someone to, to validate and then install at a convenient time. Um, but uh, also with newer uh, installations, we're using virtualization a lot more and that makes this sort of stuff a whole lot easier to deploy, you know, because you can have multiple um, <clears throat> uh, operating systems running. You can install it on one, you can turn it over to another one, you know, you can have redundant operation. So the days of taking the system down in order to do that kind of thing are going away. But as I always remind people, the vast majority of our facilities are not using that new technology yet. So we still have that challenge in, in other locations and certainly other sectors, um, I would say still, unfortunately, somewhat behind in dealing with these things. Is that a is that right there a greenfield brownfield opportunity, meaning new stuff we, 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 we've now engineered to, to address this particular issue and we got all kinds of legacy stuff, different category. Is that, is that fair to yeah, that, That's right. Yeah, I, I would say so. Yeah, I would say my observation, having worked in all of these facilities in different sectors over the years is um, a lot of the, especially technical solutions that vendors come out with to, to help with security, they're great in the right environment, but they don't solve the problem in the 80% of the facilities or whatever it is that, are, that aren't capable of supporting that. And, and as you probably know, it's not easy to, to upgrade these things. It's not like an IT environment where you can just say, let's upgrade the hardware and you know it's done over the weekend. This is stuff that we're talking about changing huge amounts of marshalling panels and wiring and all kinds of things in order to be able to achieve this in a safe and reliable way and, and then test it and make sure it all works. And people just don't want to do that kind of project because it's just very high risk. If it's working today, Basically, don't touch it. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it alone. That so, sounded, yeah. Drive sounded non-trivial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that 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 makes that makes sense. I mean, that is that's, that's part of, again sort of the sector differentiation from traditional IT networks to these networks. Like they are they are different, and that's certainly certainly one of them. Um, so security. Let's go to to all the way to today, but then I'm going to go back again. Is is how much of what you do today is focused on security? Because you could be working on other engineering, operational technology aspects of things. Clearly, with your background, are you dominant? Is security your hundred percent focus? Or no, I do a variety of things, and security is one of those pieces. Well, until um, the last few years, security was definitely the the focus. Probably eighty percent of my time would be spent doing OT, cybersecurity, uh, control system cybersecurity. Um, more recently, on the, the last project I've been doing, I had the opportunity to get involved because of my experience in some digital transformation type work. So uh, development of new technology like digital twin, uh, use of augmented reality and mixed reality. Um, I've been able to get involved in that. And actually, that's a that's a whole other area that, as we all know, is kind of on the, on the dramatic growth at the moment in terms of uh, yeah. realizing benefits for asset owners. Um, it has its own cybersecurity challenges as well. So I find I spend 
more and more time doing that kind of thing. And uh, the cybersecurity thing is becoming, at least in some sectors, fairly stable uh, in some ways. And so the, the the need to kind of spend as much time is, is, for me at least, is not as great. And so it's at a steady state, at least in oil and gas, it's it's at a point where I feel like, um, you know, we, we can monitor it and control it and, and, it's, uh, and we can look at these new things and uh, focus on those for a while. So, but I, I still do get involved um, in other sectors. Uh, so water, wastewater sector, for instance, especially the rural water sector, is severely lacking in um, competence and uh, resource availability to be able to manage their cybersecurity yeah. issues. So I help a lot with that. And I still get involved in SCADA projects and, and, and other projects that uh, involve the same kind of uh, monitoring and control technology that we've been talking about. So I, I like to keep busy and I like to keep doing different things. Well, it's, I mean, it's it strikes me that the, the, the perfect workforce of the future, which I don't know if we ever arrived there, but it would be all sorts of disciplines and, and cybersecurity being being cybersecurity informed. So when you talk about digital transformation, doing anything like that needs to be cybersecurity informed. Uh, mm. And so, uh, you know, that we, you know that this concept, if we could have more people that have at least some portion of what, what, what they do, uh, does everybody need to be an expert? No. Can we have people doing cutting edge, you know, cloud-based implementations and have, have low level knowledge of cybersecurity? The answer is no, we can't. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has to have a quote, right? No, absolutely. I, I, that's exactly um, how I feel. I, I feel that I, I don't like the idea of cybersecurity always being its own discipline and separate from everything else. I think it it needs to be much more integrated into everything we do. As you said, there's always going to be specialists. There's always going to be people who know very much more about that subject and can inform other people. But everybody needs to understand this stuff uh, and to a greater or lesser degree. Um, as I talk to people in the rural water sector, for instance, even someone who's working doing the billing in the office, they need to understand their role in cybersecurity as well. And then the, the, the folk who are looking after the SCADA system, they need to know a bit more and they need to know something else. But everybody needs to have a, a, some knowledge. And digital transformation, as you said, it's a new area, and I fear that we're falling into the same trap again. You know, we spent 20-odd years trying to secure control systems, and then vendors have come out with IoT, IIoT, all these other technologies, edge devices, and we're doing the same thing as we did 20-odd years ago with PLCs and, and controllers, where we're not building security in from the outset because no one's thinking of it. We're it's even worse now because obviously it's an order of magnitude or several orders of magnitude more in terms of devices out there that aren't adequately secured. So the attack um, surface multiplication. Yeah. Yeah. If we had a problem, but the attack surface was small, like there's guards and guns around that building and it's not connected to anything, which is clearly not, not something should, anybody should be saying now, but the attack surface was, could you could argue quite small. Now, not the case. Attack mm -hmm. surfaces abound. They're everywhere. Yeah. And also, I feel like in, in the Industry 4.0 world, we don't have that easily defined physical boundary anymore. You know, we used to have a very well understood boundary where the security could be um, enforced. And now we're talking about devices which are all over. The supply chain is all integrated. And so data is going backwards and forwards freely across all these different interfaces. So now what? how do you secure that? You know, I mean, you have to have the zero trust architecture, I guess. But uh, that's a challenge when you're dealing with um, all kinds of suppliers of different sizes um, that, you know, the weakest link is always going to be the smallest supplier and whether they can um, adequately secure what they do. 
yeah, you brought up two major themes there. Where, where is the edge? Uh, and uh, and then supply chain. Yeah, my stuff has stuff inside it made by other people. That has stuff inside that made by other people. So the stuff I'm selling has a lot of other people's stuff in it. Oh wow. So what are the implications of all that? And clearly that that stuff's rearing its ugly ugly head. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about some of your um, you know peppered throughout your your career. You know you've got your the early jobs you had working for various companies, and you've got starting your own things, not just your current company, which you've had for 15 years nearly. You, you had another company that you started, Metasphere. Yes. So uh, I I was working for a, a large IT company that had a business that did SCADA systems, mainly for the water industry. And I did a management buyout of that business and started a company called Metasphere in the UK. Uh, so I did that because I found working for a large company was frustrating because um, it's, it's very hard to influence decisions, especially product decisions, and, and follow the direction of where customers and the market wants to go. So I did that for a while, and uh, that was much more satisfying, obviously, having more control over the direction that we went in. Um, but I, throughout it all, you know, I've had a lot of uh, experience with working with uh, different people. So um, from my very earliest career to right now, I still work with all kinds of people, um, mentors and uh, peers, and I learn things every day from from everybody. And you know, some of the things I learned 33 years ago, I still apply today in the work I do. So, it's it's a very um, re rewarding um, career that uh, I, I've had because it's been a great opportunity to work with so many different people. And so, if I'm not mistaken, since 2006, even though you have had clients placing you deeply in this industry or that industry in oil and gas. You've been under your own banner, one brand, you know, well, either Metasphere and then your your current entity, um, you, you, National Automation. That's that's what you've been doing since then. Yes. So since since 2006, yeah. So I, I I've I've either been running um, the company in the UK or been working uh, with my company here in the US uh, since 2008. That has been uh, especially since I relocated to Texas and started my business here. I've I particularly enjoyed that phase of my career because I was on a path uh, which is not untypical of someone in the engineering world to gradually progress from being a technical person to more and more of a management person. And I I didn't realize until looking back that actually that's not what I wanted to do. I don't um, you know really enjoy the work managing uh, things as much as I enjoy doing them. So I particularly enjoyed this phase because I get to choose what I do, what kind of projects I do, and um, I, I also get to be very hands-on in those projects as well. So um, whilst you know maybe I should have at this stage in my life have been bossing people around, um, I'd much rather actually be uh, doing the work myself and, and I found it much more fulfilling. I think this is something we, we, we want to um, pull at this thread a little bit more because this is you know, all these guests on all this show, you, you have such an array of backgrounds and configurations, professional configurations, and, and I don't know if anybody else has quite done this. And, and this is an option, right? I and mean, there's people asking themselves, listeners I know, and people coming to our events asking themselves, what's next for me? Or you know, what, where do I go? What do I do? What makes me happy? What fulfills me? I just did an interview with another guest that isn't published yet, and it was around figure out what you really want and then go do that. Don't stay doing something. You might for six months or a year or whatever. We all have to do certain things. Maybe we made an obligation or whatever. I'm not saying just quit that and go down to something else capriciously. But in general, find what you like. And so you 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 touched on some of it, which is I like this part. I don't like that part. And so you crafted 
you forged your own destiny and crafted a situation that fits what you enjoy doing, what motivates you, and discards or eliminates or reduces at least some of the stuff you don't you don't want to do. Yep, that's that's right. Yeah, I would strongly recommend, as you were saying, to everybody is to really think about that because it's 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 a natural um, tendency, and I think it's um, it's a belief that the only way you can progress is to go a particular path and towards management. And it's obviously it's one path, but it's not the only path. And there are many people out there, and the the industry and the profession needs those people. Those people who've got deep subject matter expertise, uh, people who are going to be able to make these things happen and uh, you know there's there's not enough of those people out there because some of them are doing jobs that perhaps they shouldn't be doing um so yeah we need to encourage more and more of that and uh, your organization like um is really helpful in that because you know you you bring these people out and you you people can see what they do and and hopefully realize that they're a career path that are not if you like conventional and traditional but they actually can be very successful I, I think yeah and that's my hope uh you know that we are creating exposure um ideas concepts um new thoughts for some folks like oh i didn't realize i could do that and um so you you have been if, if i'm not mistaken you might at a given time be in a nearly or even full-time role somewhere but it's still under a contract with your own company and that gives you some freedoms that's a that's an architecture that exists and i, and I think i I know of some other people, I guess I think about it over the last 20 years of, uh, of business, 25 years of business, that I, I, I remember a CISO of my, you know, years ago at a bank. And now I think about it, when I got to know him, he was there long term, but he was under his own company. So yeah. that's, a, that's a thing. And have you ever had pressure to you know, give up that architecture and come, we want you to come work here, you need to conform? Yes, I've had a number of occasions when organizations have said, um, we, we really like you to come and work here. And, and I've seriously considered it on occasion for various reasons, but in the end, I decide not to, and, and I'm satisfied with that decision always. So, um, you know, long-term professional roles uh, give you some security, working for yourself, having to uh, find the next project while you're still working on another project, yeah. um, juggling your own time and doing all, all of the jobs that uh, need to be done in an organization. It's not for everyone and it's not easy. But again, as you've said, it, it really is about forging your own um, direction and, and making sure that you, you know, you're always doing what uh, what you want to do and uh, finding the fulfillment in doing that. I'm glad you did bring that up because it's it's uh, it would be a mistake to paint the picture of, yeah, just don't take a job, be your own boss, and it's all upside. It's uh, it's all great. Uh, just say no to the man. Uh, well, wait a minute. It, there's there's pluses and minuses, right? And I, I've, right. I've been an entrepreneur for a long time. And, and so I totally understood what you just said there, which is like, OK, I prefer this. And I've, I've thought about not doing it, but I keep coming back to this is the way I want to do it. But it's not free lunch. There are some yeah. things you have to then you have to do to make sure that the machinery keeps running because right. they are contracts and, and they're not that traditional. Like I work for a company mm. I worked for, you know, 20 years, which that's probably been pretty disrupted anyway. Not, not a lot of people do that anymore, even even mm. in the career path, uh, staying one place. I've always posited people say, well, I don't know about doing entrepreneurship versus a job. I'm like, well, jobs get eliminated. I mean, job security mm. is, is a little bit of a, I mean, it's a little bit of an artificial feeling. They're, mm not as secure as it might have been once upon a time and so but anyway it is certainly you you have more responsibility on your own yeah that's true yeah absolutely so um i've had many ups and downs even in the last 15 years um had periods of time where there's very little work and uh it's been challenging but um yeah it, it 
I think uh, overall, long term, it's still definitely um, for me. It's it's been the best option. And as you say, it, these days there's no guarantee, even with a full time job, that you you would retain that anyway. So um, yeah. I remember talking with a really, really bright programmer and I wanted him to come work for one of my startups. And he was very nervous about joining a startup. And I said, didn't you tell me when the first time we met that if you put your resume out, you wouldn't be not, you know, you'd be hired within 15 seconds. He was very, very skilled. I said, isn't that your risk profile? Isn't that how long you'd be without a job? He's like, oh yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> okay, well, this is great. So um, another thing, a theme in your career path is, is are some of these volunteer positions with IET and with ISA and so talk about that that's that's something you've done at different time periods and significant ways leading all the way up to being president of of, of ISA past president of ISA but that doesn't just that's not something you've done the last two years I mean you mm. you were doing some of that going back a long time 2004 or maybe stuff before that but I know with IET you were you were doing that's the automation and technical Talk a little bit about what that is. I, I was less for with IET as I am with I, ISA. Sure. Yeah, so IET used to be called IEEE, uh, not to be confused with IEEE. So it's the Institution of yeah. Electrical Engineers. Uh, it's been around for many years. Uh, it's UK-based originally, but it has 190,000 members, 85% of them are in the UK. Um, I, when I was in the UK, um, in university, it was uh, positively encouraged to, to join a professional engineering society when you were in um, as a student. And then as you graduated, they would have programs which would help you um, basically develop your skills into your first job and then, and then onwards. And not like an apprenticeship, but kind of a complementary thing to the training that you would get in the organization, which would really help build your skills up and make you more valuable to your employer. So everybody, you know, basically on the on the courses would 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 join these uh, mechanical engineers, the chemical engineers, or the civil engineers, or in my case, the electrical engineers. Uh, and I so as a member for a long time, didn't really do a huge amount of volunteering early on, but um, I got involved because I wanted to um, do a few things. One is I wanted to learn more about uh, the profession and learn from others, make some good contacts, and improve my networking. Um, and and just generally be a part of something more than just you know my job. So I got involved with IET, who was IEEE at the time, uh, and I was a, a volunteer in their control and automation professional network. So uh, as the name suggests, very much uh, focused on control and automation systems. Then when I came to the, uh, um, I was asked by IET if I could chair their Americas region. So they were starting up some new volunteer. Uh, regions to coordinate stuff and they started one in the Americas so I was the chair of that from 2009 to 2012 for the first three years of its existence and I enjoyed that got to travel the world a lot meet a lot of volunteers around the world and uh, you know try and do stuff in the US in a kind of positive way to get members together help improve networking and, and help improve knowledge sharing and that was very enjoyable and then through uh, through that I, I actually got connected with ISA so um, one of my friends from I, IET uh, he is the um, engineer director for automation for Unilever worldwide and uh, he was involved with um, ISA in the workforce development group and he was unable to attend a meeting one day so he said would you be able to go in my place so I went to this meeting where we were talking about the development of a thing called the automation competency model which the u.s department of labor asked 
ISA to, to develop. And so I was there at the first meeting for that back in uh, 2008. And uh, so, and, uh, and I've been involved ever since. So I, I joined ISA, met some people there. They've been some of my long-term um, mentors and supporters, so former presidents of ISA. So they've been really instrumental in helping my last 15 years or so of my career. So I really enjoyed that experience. And through that, that's how I ended up gradually progressing and doing more with ISA until recently I was uh, elected president. So I did the, it's a three-year term. So you're a uh, incoming president, then you're president. And now this year, I'm the immediate past president. Yeah. Yeah. I like that always for continuity and all the knowledge that's gained. And I think that's a smart, you know, organizational practice to keep sort of uh, ramping up. And doing it and then also not leaving with all that knowledge you gained. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's super. How has that been? And talk about cybersecurity. You know, ISA is, um, you know, incredibly well known around the world for, for automation and security has been, uh, you know, a bigger and bigger emphasis area. It's clearly many disciplines within automation, but security is a big one. And uh, ISA has been taking that, you know, quite, uh, quite seriously. Has that been some of your focus? I, mean, I, I guess as, as president, it was the broad based everything, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so when I when I originally got involved with ISA, so I was doing workforce development, and a big part of workforce development was obviously the industrial cybersecurity part. And I spent a lot of time not just talking about workforce development, but about the importance of the application of industrial cybersecurity standards to um, critical infrastructure. So a, a lot of the advocacy volunteer work that I did with ISA was to to visit with governmental and non-governmental organizations to make them aware of the existence of the 62443 standard, which at the time was just transitioning from ISA 99 to the IEC version. Uh, so that was quite an important um, point for ISA because um, I guess even today, there's still people who don't make the connection between 62443, the international standard, and International Society of Automation. Uh, but um, yeah, they've been developing that standard since 2002. So, you know, again, pretty much back to the time period I was talking about where people started to become aware that this was an issue. Uh, so it's been a very long running um, activity for ISA. So they're famous for um, safety management, alarm management, and process management, um, instrumentation, all that sort of stuff. Uh, a lot of standards, a lot of uh, technical reports about that. They decided to get into this area because they saw that there was a, a gap here. And it's, it's proven to be really important for the industry because that standard is now used throughout the world for defining how to do industrial cybersecurity, especially in sectors like oil and gas, for instance. So there, it's it continues to be an important thing for ISA. So they have certificate programs now, so you can um, take courses and you can become a, a 62443 expert. I think that sort of thing is really important. I'm not selling ISA specifically, but I think the people who work in our profession, especially the cybersecurity space, but even the automation space generally, I feel like they ought to be certified to do the job that they're doing. I think they ought to demonstrate their skills and knowledge in a formal way, because this sort of stuff is particularly hazardous and, and it can be very harmful to people in the environment. And I think it's not reasonable to expect that people can just come along with some knowledge that they got off the internet and hope that they can do a good job. It's much more important than that. And um, just to touch on what we talked about earlier, which is 
you don't have to jump ships and become a cybersecurity full-time person, but add it to your professional path. Whatever that path is, add some. Right. And and then whatever conversation you're part of and whatever you're engineering, whatever you're designing, whatever you're implementing, it's informed, uh, which is not where we are today, right. generally speaking. Right, right. Today, we're still in a situation where even in oil and gas that I've mentioned is well advanced. We still have people who really just say, well, cybersecurity, that's someone else's problem. My yeah. job is this. And yeah, we're, we, we need to change that because that um, it influences everything. And if you look at, um, you know, most of the work that people are doing today, they understand now the really inherent connection between safety and cybersecurity in, in the work that we do. It's really just a safety thing. Cybersecurity just happens to be uh, an initiating cause of a safety incident. And if we think about it like that, then people start to understand that cybersecurity is everybody's job. But we're, we're still a long way off uh, from making sure everybody's universally aware of that. Yeah, I, I that brings up a whole other thing that I'm sort of passionate about. It's like safety culture happened. It got it, it, it got created. There was all these impotent, you know, reasons. There were injuries and deaths. And you know, now there's the you know, it's it's a real thing. It, it's definitely embedded in some, in, if not in many industries. It's it's a it works. We need a cybersecurity culture where everybody's on board and everybody gets at least a certain level of standard. Again, not doesn't call everybody to be an expert. But not where we are now, and there's a high level high level of hygiene that's higher uh, forever for every single person, um, and then for some people even higher. Sure, mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah. So if we go back to that competency model that I mentioned, the automation competency model, there, there's different um, levels uh, tiers in that model. You know, if you imagine a pyramid, at the very lowest level, you've got the most basic skills, and as you go up, you get more and more narrow and more and more specific to the particular role that you do but as you're pointing out throughout all of those levels there's elements of all of those things that you need to know um to a, to a certain degree and, and as you get further and further up there you know you may need to know a lot more but uh i think that um the way we do the education at the moment for cybersecurity, we still kind of treat it like a separate uh, discipline, which is okay, again, for that particular type of role, but we, we're not really necessarily doing the education for, for everybody. Or if we're doing it, it's a very superficial education, which is like, just don't click on that link in the yeah. email or something like that, something really basic, which it's okay, but there's a there's a gap between that and the, the really detailed knowledge that I think we still need to fill. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, the annual report this year that we just published in the summer, um, our, our, our KPMGCC annual report, the number one threat actor, you know, and we had a huge respondent pool this time. The number one threat actor were two types of insiders. The number one was the negligent insider, not malicious, the negligent insider. And then the malicious insider was also a, a big one, um, which tied with some of the other categories or close to it. But it, non-intentional sort of non-malicious non, uh, insider was the number one threat, threat actor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we've, we've seen that for many years that that's been the the issue and um trying to explain that to people um about how you deal with cybersecurity has always been a challenge because they say things like well that happened there but that will never happen in my organization my people are too smart they'll, ne they'll never make a mistake and you know well okay i don't think that's true but it's hard to prove and you know your report is really important, I think, because we need more of that kind of reporting, in, especially in cybersecurity. We have 
lots and lots of data uh, that back up safety um, issues, and, and you yeah. can use that in analysis, and people understand it. In cybersecurity, we're still at this position where we don't really know how to estimate the likelihood of something happening, and so it's either uh, it's certain to happen, which kind of doesn't mean anything, or it's so unlikely to happen that I'm not even going to think about it. And actually, as we know, the answer is somewhere in between there. Um, but your report really helps um, inform that sort of thing. So it's very uh, good that you're able to produce that every year. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to hear you say that because it's um, it's it's certainly the goal of it to, to help people make decisions, you know, and uh, what you described sounds to me, you know, like we're achieving at least some of that vision and dream for it. Uh, that people could read it and say, what are other people doing? And what are, what's ground truth? You know, there's we, we've got no ax to grind. It's like, get all the data we can, read it, synthesize it, analyze it, and then just turn it right back out to everybody. And and then someone can say to maybe to their, who they report to or to their committee, whatever, this is ground truth. We can hold all these opinions, but here's what's going on, you know, and here's what people are spending money on, or here's where they're seeing the biggest return on investment, whatever. Um, and, and so I think some patterns are emerging. Now that we can do multi-year, comparisons this is getting exciting too to see yeah. the difference between multi-years and mm -hmm. so we only have two of those but now we'll next year we'll have three so let's talk about you know the engineers that are listening to this i think we you know we know people coming to our events come from <laughs> lots of backgrounds but we have people with engineering backgrounds we've already started to touch on this as far as adding to their their professional you know arsenal so to speak adding cybersecurity, understanding empathy knowledge maybe courses you know can do you have any advice not to jump ships and become a cybersecurity expert, but to the rank and file engineers and people that, that I think come to some of our events to sort of round out or get some additional knowledge. Any advice to engineers, people that had your background? And then I guess this could be also phrased as going back and talking to your younger engineer self, you know, any career advice uh, you would you would give? Yeah, so I, I think I naturally think that engineering as a basis is a really good place to start and the, for cybersecurity because the reason I say that is because I think that um, the engineering profession has a very particular set of disciplines and approaches to doing things, very systematic and uh, necessary systematic, because you can't just do something and you know hope for the best. You have to be very careful about how you approach things. So I think cybersecurity for me is a very natural um, additional discipline to have because uh, you can apply the same kind of basic principles in engineering to cybersecurity. I think that probably the fear from some engineering people is that cybersecurity uh, seems like a quite a daunting skill to, 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 to grasp if you look at uh, the stuff that people talk about commonly about cybersecurity. There's there's a whole host of uh, language that you know only the insiders understand. There's products and solutions out there that um, are particular approaches to doing things and it's it's quite overwhelming to understand really what you want to do but I think that um, if we step back as engineers and, and kind of say well what are we trying to do here and apply the same principles we can actually um, do a very good job of uh, producing the uh, the most important elements of cybersecurity management that that I think are often missed you mentioned you know about uh, how you secure the perimeter and, and you know how you secure inside and you talked about insiders the thing that I often talk about with cybersecurity uh, people is a lot of the technology that we uh, look at uh, solving our cybersecurity problems is looking at how to manage what goes in and out of this boundary this facility that we have but actually very little technology exists out there to to manage that 
insider, especially the uh, unintentional incident type insider, um, but even the malicious insider. So you know you can you can do logging and you can do all that other stuff, but but actually a lot of it is really basic stuff. You know, it's a lot of it is the same stuff that you do with safety is like how you make sure someone doesn't do something stupid, how you make sure that they follow a strict procedure and things like that. So what I would say to engineers is that you have a great opportunity to use the skills and knowledge that you have uh, that you use in safety or process engineering, and you can actually apply all of those um, skills and disciplines that you have and actually be very successful in terms of industrial cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah, love it. Well, I think you and I could pull on a, a zillion threads here and uh, and, and do a four-hour podcast, which I don't know if they, I don't know how many people would listen to it. Um, <laughs> but uh, what are you excited about? You know, just looking ahead uh, about uh, our industry. Well, my biggest concern, and this is not specific to cybersecurity, but just generally in engineering, is I, I'm constantly concerned about competency. I'm concerned about um, a, a loss of knowledge in our profession, in the engineering profession, as people retire. And it's not just the technical knowledge, but it's just the uh, actual underlying discipline and, and skill that those people have developed over many years. Most of them learned those things on the job because there wasn't formal training back then, but it's over many decades and it's been passed down and people have learned that. But unfortunately, I feel like these days there, there's not um, a lot of emphasis on learning some of the real basic things. So the things I'm thinking about is how you write a technical document, how you properly test something, how you go about um, developing something. So people learn programming languages, for instance, uh, which to me is just it's just a syntax thing, but they don't really learn the discipline of how you write software. So, you know, if you watch the documentary about Uber, for instance, you see that those guys are hacking away, trying to reduce this monolithic piece of code that somebody wrote into little micro modules that they could deploy more easily. Now, it shouldn't have been like that in the first place, but that's that's how that's how people do things, because there's no one to tell them not to do it. And in our profession, it's much more dangerous if you, um, you know, you write something badly, uh, you could kill people you could harm the environment and i fear that right now the only people who need to be certified uh, in our profession uh, are either project managers who have to have a pmp certification to drive a spreadsheet and a gantt chart uh, and then in some cases you have licensed professional engineers who can sign off process diagrams and, and other things where it might impact safety but yeah. in between there people writing plc programs people configuring HMIs, people installing um, DCSs, they don't have to have any particular certifications or competence to uh, to do that. They can uh, they can they can do it and, and hope for the best. And so my biggest fear is that just seems to be getting worse over time because there's no real push from asset owners to to have competent people. There's no push from uh, vendors to make sure their people are properly trained. Uh, and so where is the drive coming from for um, these people? The only place it comes from is individuals saying, I want to learn and I want to improve my skills and I want to demonstrate my skills. But I don't think that's enough, unfortunately. Yeah, the positive spin when I listen to that list is there's lots of opportunity. So for mm -hmm. someone who does want to apply themselves in that, the way you describe that, that is not a mature like, you know, you fight for your chance to get in. There's lots of places to get in and to be 
recognized and to probably have upward mobility or certainly financial, mm -hmm. uh, you know, do do well financially by having uh, having cross domain discipline and, and knowledge and experience. Get it wherever you can get it. Get get a hold of it and uh, and make yourself unique. Make yourself into one of these unicorns because uh, there's a lot of opportunity in any space that's that 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 that, that has that many holes, so to speak. No, that's 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 a much better play of footnote. Yeah, your your positive spin is much better than my negative spin. Yeah, I, I you know, ISA and CSA, uh, two organisations which I regard highly because they focus very much on the importance of individual competency and having pushing people to learn more. So everything you do, everything ISA does, is all about helping people learn more and be better and uh, improve what they do. Uh, which is great. So, there, like you said, there's there's no there's no limit to what people can do to to improve themselves. It's just we've got to make sure that um, I think uh, systematically um, and um, industry wide, we 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 encourage it as well. You know, we support it. We we give people the recognition. We we ask for those skills and knowledge. We ask for those certifications when we're when we're doing jobs. That's the bit that I hope that we can change over time. And I agree with you. I mean, it's. I'm always looking for what's the what's the silver lining, what's the good thing. I mean, the truth is we have some exposure and we have some challenges, and um, and we you know we we've got a lot of work to do, and so that means for some people that's an opportunity, but it, societally there's a weakness there, um, and I know that's what you you know what you're you're passionate about and what you're saying, and it's true, um, and and hopefully over time all of us it's a group effort can can move the needle and fix this to some degree. We won't ever arrive at a destination called we're secure. But we can get we get way better than where we are now. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So th th these sort of things are really uh, essential to to doing that. You know, getting the word out and, and helping people see the opportunity and and you know move it forward. And I think CSA has grown over over time, and uh, you know that that's a really important trick uh, indicator, I guess, of the fact that there are people out there who who want to do this. Yeah, you know, I think Steve, this has been sort of. I've, I've told people there were I didn't run a business plan for this as I did many of my business ventures. Um, I had to, you know, there were deliberate plans and here's what's going to happen. Of course, some of those things are hard to achieve. This one, it it, it, it tapped. I mean, it's it's what you just you know said. It just tapped into need and and desire. The problem is global. You know, g governments vary. Uh, you know, state by state, country by country. Okay, there are some regional differences, but the problem is ubiquitous. It's all over the world, and and the exposure is increasing, not decreasing, because of attack surfaces are multiplying and uh and, and threat actor sophistication is, is is rising and so i you know i hate to end on a negative you know negative thing so again there's opportunity here but but yeah that's 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 what we're in right we're in a you know it's a, a what is it the the um the, the the pot of boiling water if you boil you know turn all the way up to boiling the frogs jump out i forget the whole story but if you just slowly you know they stay in there and cook um, and so we got to be careful that we're not frogs in a pot slowly cooking to death. You know, we got to say it is the temperature is rising and mm -hmm. it's, people are. I mean, I, I think that's the thing is we broad brush strokes. There's weaknesses. I love that there are and I get in this role that I'm in now get exposed to pockets of progress being made in, in all our parts of the arena. We just need more of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, this it comes to my favorite part uh, always of these things is to end uh, with a little homage to Inside the Actor Studio, um, a show that I loved watching all these famous actors and actresses being interviewed by uh, James Lipton, who has uh, sadly passed on. I think the show may still live on, but he, for I think for three, three, three decades, I think he was the host. He borrowed something he called the Beau questionnaire from a French show 
And so I think these have been asked of people, you know, exactly like this for, for 30 years. So I've not modified the questions. If you're ready, we'll, I'll ask you the, uh, the 10 questions. All right. All right, Steve. What is your favorite word? Truth, as in, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. What is your least favorite word? Lie. And I say that because, unfortunately, even these days, the word lie is doesn't mean what it used to mean. So lie just means I don't agree with you or I, I don't believe you, which, unfortunately, is not the what it should mean. What turns you on, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Uh, music is my... Uh, thing that turns me on the most I have to listen to music when I work my wife has the opposite she can't work if she listens to music but um, yeah I, I can't live without music what turns you off uh, so I, I I work with a lot of different people over time and the, the, the only people that I really get turned off by are the uh, people who are um, basically misrepresenting their selves. I mean, we talked about competence and that's a big thing for me. So I really dislike knowing that there are people out there who pretend to know stuff when they don't. And then those self-serving people who, um, you know, basically spend all their time promoting themselves, but not actually doing anything either for the profession or even their job. Uh, that kind of turns me off a lot. Well, and what is your favorite curse word? Well, I say fuck all the time, but actually my favorite word is wanker. And that if you're in the UK or Australia, you know what that means. <laughs> Very British. Um, what sound or noise do you love? So I love the sound of um, fingers moving up and down uh, an acoustic guitar fretboard. And maybe people don't know what that sounds like, but if you listen to an acoustic song, you'll hear it. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound of a smoke alarm going off at 3 a.m. Uh, sorry, the battery alarm going off at 3 a.m. in the smoke alarm. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I, I would have loved to have been a musician if I could have done it, but my skills don't match my uh, ambition there. What profession would you not like to do? I don't think I could be a lawyer, uh, in particular, um, someone defending people who you know probably have broken the law. I think that's quite difficult to do. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I hope he says, come on in and join the party. There's some people here waiting to meet you. All right. What an awesome uh, podcast interview with Steve Mustard. President and CEO of National Automation Inc., longtime contributor to the space, longer time engineer and process control expert, and uh, a great volunteer in the community with multiple organizations and a great supporter of CSA. So thank you not only for today, Steve, but for everything you do and have been doing for a long time in the industry. Well, thank you, Derek. Thank you for everything you do, and thank you for CSA and making it happen. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today with you. Take care. Be well. Bye, Steve. Thank you. You too.